0: My guest today is Dr. Sandra Steingraber, Biologist, author, and cancer survivor, Dr. Sandra Steingraber writes about climate change, ecology, and the links between human health and the environment. Steingraber's highly acclaimed book, Living Downstream, an ecologist's personal investigation of cancer and the environment, was the first to bring together data on toxic releases with data from US cancer registries and was adapted for the screen in 2010, winning praise from international media called A Poet with a Knife by Sojourner Magazine, Steingraver has received many honors for her work as a science writer, including in 2011, a Heinz Award. She has been named a Woman of the Year by Ms. Magazine, a Person of the Year by Treehugger, and one of 25 Visionaries Who Are Changing Your World by The Utney Reader. She is the recipient of the biennial Rachel Carson Leadership Award, the Jennifer Altman Foundation's Altman Award for the Inspiring and Poetic Use of Science to Elucidate the Causes of Cancer. Steingraber received a Hero Award from the Breast Cancer Fund and the Environmental Health Champion Award from Physicians for Social Responsibility in Los Angeles. She has testified in the European Parliament at the European Commission before the President's Cancer Panel and has participated in briefings to Congress, the Environmental Protection Agency, and before the United Nations delegates in Geneva, Switzerland. So Sandra, we've had a few conversations on this podcast about the environmental ethics and about the ethics of technology. Here we previously had the climate scientist Mark Jacobson over at Stanford talk about technological approaches to combating climate change. We've also had Tim Morton from Rice University to talk about environmental thinking and technology from a humanistic perspective. You bring a third and I think an entirely kind of new perspective. I know that you're specialized in environmental destruction, ecology, and the connection between human health and the environment. What got you thinking about this intersection?
1: Well, I think all of us in science bring our own autobiographies to bear to our work, and I'm no different. So for me, I bring to my science my identity as an adopted person. I began life as a ward of the state, and I've never seen my original birth certificate. I was part of a a very specific cultural, political, political era of adoption called the baby scoop era at which after world war ii really shamed a lot of young unwed birth mothers into surrendering infants those infants were often trafficked and sent to other homes and so my membership in the adoptee community and fight for adoptee rights is part of who i am i'm also a cancer survivor who was diagnosed at a young age with a rare cancer at age 20 which my adoption status complicated because I didn't have access to my genetic and family history, right? And so the kind of cancer I had was known to have environmental links, and my own diagnosing physician asked me about my possible childhood exposures to certain kind of carcinogenic chemicals. My aunt went on to die of the same kind of cancer that I had. My mom had another kind of cancer, which metastasized, so she and I were actually co-cancer patients at the same time. My mom was in her mid-40s. I was 20. And so I do have a cancer family, but again, as an adoptee, I was really aware of the role that environment plays because families share more than chromosomes in common, right? We, we share drinking water supplies and air and food and so on. And so as a young biologist, I became really interested in the false assumption that what runs in families necessarily runs in genes rather than in shared environments, and then I'm gay and and I'm late coming out as a gay woman, and I think being part of the LGBTQ community and the kind of heteronormity that we see in our culture, which we presume comes from biology, but as a biologist I can tell you it doesn't. As somebody who's who studied white-tailed deer as part of my dissertation work. So I think all those perspectives are part of who I am. That being said, I am, as as Mark Jacobson or anyone else in who occupies um, a STEM field would say, we're all very proud of our ability to suspend all of our life histories and suspend our emotions and just look at data and let it speak to us, right? And so that's uh, old fashioned objectivity. So, and I can do it as well as anyone look at, the spread of black data points in mathematical white space and tell you what story that data is telling. But I do believe at the end of the day, after the objective data analysis, that if that that data show that people are being harmed or we're crashing the climate, then I feel not politically neutral. I feel like I have an, uh, an obligation to take action and a real belief that science is for the people and science has an a moral purpose, and it's to make the world a better place. It's not just for my own wonderment. So I think both at the like at the beginning of the scientific process, what questions and lines of inquiry do I choose to direct my scientific eye down? That is a moral and ethical question for me. And then at the end of the objective process, like what am I going to do with this data? How can I bring it to policymakers? You know how can I bring it to the public eye? And if policymakers choose to ignore it, what are my obligations after that, which in some cases for me has become civil disobedience.
0: I've been thinking a lot about the point that you make about the scientific objectivity of looking at data points in space and bringing a kind of objective science mind to it. I teach a lot of students with an engineering background. I think the assumption that many of them make is technological production is neutral, right? Either the plane flies or it does not fly. But of course, I think if we look right under the surface, uh, oftentimes what we see is that technology technological products and technological production is never neutral. There's always kind of the biases and the blind spots and the passions of the people who build and who deconstruct that information built into them. And one of the things I talk about in this context is the significance of creating space, especially in the sphere of technology for people who bring in a diverse array of experiences and perspectives into the context of technological imagining, into the context of scientific analysis, and in the context of technological and scientific knowledge production. How do you think about the link between your experience and the way that it oriented you in your professional trajectory? And especially since we're talking to an audience with a significant proportion of college students, 18 to 22 year old students, how might they think about bringing their experiences and the diversity of experiences that they have from their own position and their own background into their career trajectories?
1: I think the big one is like, what questions are you going to address? Like, what do you decide is important to turn your scientist's eye towards, right? So uh, lots of scientists are employed by the oil and gas industry. And Have spent their careers like going around the surface of the earth to try to better understand where all the big bubbles of oil and gas are located. You know, where are these reserves and how can we get them out of the ground through ever more complex technologies, especially since all the easy to get oil and gas. pretty much gone. So then there's fracking and then there's steam, cyclical steam, and there's acidization and all kinds of different ways to kind of melt the rock or blow the rock up and get this oil and gas that's trapped inside to flow to the surface. And so that's not neutral, right? That's um, a political value that we have. And it has a history, a specific political history of deciding 150 years ago that the way we were going to power the Industrial Revolution was through blasting out essentially the corpses of long extinct Devonian animals and light those corpses on fire in the crematoria that we call power plants or internal combustion engines. So that turns out not to be at all ethically neutral because you can only do that if you use the atmosphere as the waste product for the combustion byproducts of burning fossil fuels. And now we understand through other scientific inquiry that those substances, namely carbon dioxide and methane, have the ability as molecules to start vibrating when thermal radiation in the form of energy from the sun bounces off the surface of the earth and tries to escape out into outer space. The more you load up the atmosphere with heat trapping gases, the more you raise the temperature, and then you get all these consequences. And so the, qu- the question isn't so much like, what's objective analysis? It's like, what are you going to do with your one life as a scientist or an engineer? Are, are you going to figure out how to end our dependency on oil and gas and invest your time in deploying renewables and figuring out, you know, like b- battery storage or a smart grid? I mean, those are all engineering problems. And those are ethical and moral questions for you to ask, like, where do you want to direct your science to? And then in the middle of it all, you're very objective, right? You're just letting the data talk to you and you're figuring out some kind of an amazing thing about how the world is organized um, and how things work. And that's the kind of fun, gee whiz part of science. But then again, at the end of the day, if you're trying to solve and make the world better, which I think that's what that's the goal of science, right? Then what are you going to do as a scientist to make sure that your ideas for how to make the world better actually get deployed? Is your job done when you publish your study or is your job to become sort of an an evangelist for your own data, to go, go tell it on the mountain and try to change the dominant narrative so that, for example, that we look up at wind and solar power for energy rather than down into the center of the earth for how we're going to keep the lights turned on?
0: you know it's really interesting because as i was listening to you talking you mentioned three things that stood out for me the first is that this idea that we have about burning these prehistoric bodies of long dead animals in order to create energy for our own technological products has a history of ideas and that history of ideas is something that seems like has deeply informed your work and then you talked about trying to do the good which of course has its own history the idea of the good itself has a long and complicated philosophical background so we have on the one hand the history of ideas on the other hand we have the philosophical dimension of things and on the on the third hand if I'm allowed a third hand we have the idea of the dominant narrative and and responding to the dominant narrative which of course is also a history itself which is knowing what narrative is and knowing what dominant narratives are and how to subvert them. And those are three areas that extend beyond what we would typically call the realm of scientific inquiry. Uh, This is, I think, at the heart of what we would call an, an intersectional, interdisciplinary form of work. And you describe your work as exploring the links between human rights and the environment with a focus on chemical contamination, climate change, shale gas extraction via fracking. Who do you think needs to be at the table for these kinds of discussions? What does interdisciplinarity and intersectionality contribute to this work? What are some of the challenges as well that you face or that you've seen other folks in your environment face when you're trying to work in this kind of more capacious way?
1: Yeah, well, all of my ideas about that come straight from the grassroots. It's not theory for me. So I work together in a lot of frontline communities who are experiencing the worst effects of whatever it is. When I was a young biologist, I looked at pesticides and their ability to harm human health. And in fact, my life was profoundly changed when I discovered while doing my dissertation in the headwaters of the Mississippi, that the forest I was working in had been pretty secretly, I would say that's the right word, sprayed with Agent Orange in the 1950s and 1960s. And there was a particular reason for that, right? That was, it was part about money generating because they wanted to improve vistas for tourists who would come that see the headwaters of the Mississippi. Um, but also there was a kind of belief that shrubs, that have a natural part in the understory of a forest were actually kind of like the red menace. And they were invading with by their underground roots and rhizomes and sending up legions of ramets that were somehow competing against the patriotic pine trees. <laughs> and so this language of the Cold War and invasion, you see it in the language of science done in the 1950s and 60s, which helped justify Uh, the spraying of a very dangerous toxic chemical over what was is an unlogged called a premier pristine primeval pine forest right and so that completely actually wrecked a couple of my dissertation experiments as a field biologist and so I had to realize that there was no sort of special pure place that I could go just to understand how the natural forces worked right there' are always like there's always a human history in in every place and sometimes that human history is known and sometimes they do things like that and then when the ability of Agent Orange to cause birth defects is revealed by Vietnamese journalists and then now there are congressional hearings and we ban Agent Orange as a weapon of war all of a sudden very quietly in the forest I was working in they stopped spraying right so, here's an example of a big ecological change that happened for a very specific set of political historical reasons that i would have missed had i not been on the lookout for that and i'm actually just writing an essay about my lived experience when i kind of stumbled upon the secret spraying program <laughs> Um, While doing my dissertation work, it's going to be in Orion Magazine this summer. But the work I do now in fracking, I would say I'm always working together with frontline communities where fracking has happened. So I, I believe that it's not just up to scientists to just choose our questions of inquiry, that those who are going to be harmed by a technology get to pose those questions. So if people in let's say I'm speaking next month to a a community in Arlington, Texas, where a lot of new gas wells are going online. Well, they have very specific questions they want answers to because one of these gas wells is going in next to a a daycare center. So I think they get to ask the questions and then I, as a scientist, my job is to take the questions for the people that need the answers and go see what I can find out. And I mean, that's what we did also is a kind of a model, I would say, that was created, well, probably has been created and recreated multiple times. But in my lifetime, what I really remember is the AIDS epidemic of the late 80s and early 90s, when it was clear that virologists on their own weren't working at a pace and a speed and weren't asking questions that necessarily saved the most lives when they were trying to figure out what the cause of the AIDS epidemic was. And they thought it was the HIV virus that wasn't clear. And so it was only when, under the banner, silence equals death, when a lot of men in the gay community who were at the front lines because they were all infected and dying, demanded a seat at the table with the scientists to say, these are the questions that is important to answer. We assign you these questions, go find out. And so that really changed things a lot. And I, at the time, was a young biology professor teaching in Chicago, and I was assigned as the youngest woman, the only woman in my department, to be the AIDS awareness educator for the entire campus. It was one of the jobs that the guys didn't want because it involved showing hundreds of people how to put condoms on bananas, right? And so I went out there and did it. And as a gay woman, I'm pleased to say I have very excellent condom skills as a a result. But it was clear that I was doing this education about AIDS and about what was risky behavior and not. It was life-saving biology, right? It It was education for people's lives and yet we didn't know everything about HIV and how it behaved and how it was transmitted so but silence was not an option we had to do the best we could with the data we had knowing that next semester I was going to be teaching this in a different way because there would be more data so I was working in a moving stream of data so that lesson for me became really determinative then because as a a woman with cancer in the late 80s, early 90s, then the breast cancer movement began to be radicalized and women with cancer began asking questions, not just about their mortality, but like what is causing us to have cancer at younger and younger ages, particularly breast cancer, right? Why is the age of diagnosis falling? And what do we know about breast carcinogens in the, in the environment, in our economy? So because I was a biologist and because of my dissertation had this kind of growing expertise on toxic chemicals, and because I'm a woman with cancer who was part of these communities, then I was ordered <laughs> by women with cancer, like Dr. Steingraber, these are the questions we want addressed. What's the role of pesticides here? What about radiation exposure? And so I have always been there ever since taken my scientific questions from people in the community. And with fracking now, which I spent the last 10 years of my life looking at, it's really clear that we need to center environmental justice, right? That oil and gas is trapped inside our our nation's shale bedrock all up and down from the east where it's the Marcella Shale to Texas where it's the Permian Basin to North Dakota where we call it the Bakken to the oil fields underneath metropolitan Los Angeles, right? It's everywhere. But almost always, the wells, the well pads, the flare stacks, the pipelines, the compressor stations, the storage depots, the gas-fired power plants, these are not located in white, wealthy places. They're almost always located in impoverished, brown, black, indigenous communities. And, And it's not because it just so happens there's more oil and gas under those communities. It's just the places where the people who live there do not have political power. They don't have access to environmental decision-making and where permitting can happen and dangerous toxic things can happen. So we can't look at the health impacts of fracking which is a source of my work without an environmental justice perspective, without understanding that fracking is a form of systemic racism. So again, the questions I ask in my research about fracking as part of this collective called Concerned Health Professionals of New York, which I'm one of the co-founders of, and we are a group of physicians and scientists whose self-appointed task is to compile all the literature on the risks and harms of fracking, but we are guided in our work by the communities that we work within.
0: You know, this is really interesting. There's a couple of things I wanted to kind of pick up and put together because you have an article that you published in 2012 called The Metaphors of Fracking. And as you were speaking, I couldn't, I couldn't help but think of Susan Sontag's landmark work, Metaphors of Illness, in which she right. talks about both cancer and AIDS and the metaphors that we use to describe these things and how the metaphors actually become part of the way that we decide to act in light of our understanding about things. So metaphors both become an organizing principle for understanding and then the conduit for our further action. I wanted to hear from you, you know, thinking about that article and thinking about these kinds of ways in which metaphors can be used and and the significance that they seem to have. What do metaphors have to do for you in terms of how we think and about and understand technological processes and products and also scientific processes and, and products? Why do metaphors... Matter,
1: yeah, I mean, I guess this goes back to your point about dominant narratives, right? And I think you're right that uh, metaphors are a kind of organizing element of these dominant narratives. and and in biology, in particular, we have some really powerful ones, right? That DNA is the master molecule, that the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. And even a simple sentence like sperm fertilizes the egg is really metaphorical because the structure of the sentence, presumes that the egg is the object of the fertilization and that the sperm is the actor. And structuring a sentence like that blinds us to the fact and did for years, that the egg actually is secreting parahormonal signals that's drawing Mm -hmm. the sperm in her, I'm gonna use a pronoun, her direction. And so you you could just as well say the egg fertilizes the sperm, right? Only that sounds strange to our ears. And I'm actually, this is not, I should say not a unique idea with me. It's the feminist biologist, Bonnie Spanier, who has brought this to our attention, right? And so, Feminist biology has helped us look at some of those metaphors to see what we're not seeing because the metaphor has this kind of template in our head. And certainly the idea of DNA as the master molecule has blinded us, I would say, to epigenetic signals, endocrine signals, so that you you could just as easily, instead of seeing the DNA as the master of the house the house being the cell, you could see the DNA as a, a piano, you know, with 88 keys, and the environment is the, ha- are the hands of the pianist, and you can play ragtime, or you can play a Bach cantata, depending on what the pianist wants to play, so in some ways that DNA is simply re- responding to another master, which is these environmental signals coming, you know, that's the kind of uh, communion between the external environment and the internal environment of the cell but the master molecule metaphor has kind of blinded us I think to that for years so in the terms of fracking in that 2012 article at the time the dominant metaphor around natural gas which is methane which is one of the quarries of fracking is that natural gas is a bridge so then the next question is well where is a bridge to like what's on the far shore like over what river are we is this bridge taking us And the answer was always a little bit fuzzy and kind of changed, right, depending on who and what the forum was. So in some cases, the bridge was, well, it's a bridge to energy independence, or it's a bridge to renewables, or it's a bridge to a low-carbon future. And it was a metaphor invented by the oil and gas industry, but then picked up even by the scientific community, but also by some of our big institutions such as the International Energy Agency, which is this big intergovernmental organization founded in um, 1974 in response to one of the first energy crises, and and they continued talking about this bridge of natural gas and, and even referred to the golden age of gas and asking by what rules and regulations would the golden age of gas be governed? And the answer was, well, there'll be golden rules for the golden age of us. And it's like, what is this golden stuff, right? And so I think that we've moved beyond natural gas as a bridge. Certainly one of my colleagues in the sciences, the engineer Tony Ingrafia at Cornell has has published an, an essay making very clear that natural gas is a gangplank. It's not a bridge. And the pirates are not our friends, right? And so the the data are really clear that natural gas has, has a more powerful ability to trap heat than carbon dioxide. And that fracking is actually responsible for the current surge in methane emissions that we're seeing in our environment, in our atmosphere. And that surge is actually driving the climate crisis. Um, And there's new studies always in the pipeline. I'm always having my my eye out for what's coming down the pike. So we're going to see some new studies coming out from another uh, Cornell scientist, uh, Bob Howarth, who's also an ecologist like I am, who studies methane cycling in the atmosphere. Well, we already know, for example, that if methane leaks from the fracking system, somewhere between 27 and 3.2%, we lose that much methane out of the system, that that's the break even point for when fracking becomes worse for the climate than coal. And it now looks like with this new data coming down the pipe that there's a 4% lifespan leakage rate, right? So in other words, we're going from the frying pan into the fire. And I think that what makes that metaphor so hard for people to deal with is that coal, just as a thing to look at, is like this black lumpy sooty thing and it looks dirty, so we call it dirty energy, right? Where methane is invisible, It it doesn't have a smell unless you add additional smell to it. So it's this kind of the unholy ghost, if you will, of the oil, gas, and coal, unholy trinity of fossil fuels, right? And so it looks clean because we can't see it, and yet in terms of its ability to crash the climate system, um, it's it's actually worse. I mean, that's what the data show. So we're going to need some new metaphors that have nothing to do with bridges and golden to kind of describe the threat and the menace that methane, aka natural gas, plays for our climate system. So I'm kind of working on that. As I mean, I'm also a writer, not just a biologist, so I'm really interested in how we can use metaphors and language. I mean, it's a visual age, there's lots of things we can do with visual narratives, but there's still a role for language to play in helping us shape our understanding of things.
0: There's a very interesting environmental thinker in my field, English literature, Rob Nixon, who talks a lot about what he calls slow violence. And he describes slow violence as the violence of products and processes and slow geological time that's really hard to fit into our conventional forms of narrative because the processes take place over such long periods of time and because the causes and effects are so distant from one another frequently and also because the causes and the agents of violence are invisible themselves so in that description slow violence he gets at I think one of the core difficulties you're describing which is how do we make these kinds of violent technologies legible to people so that they can understand them and understand this kind of violence. You have been described as somebody, and this is I'm quoting here, mi- who mixes personal passionate stories with totally comprehensive and accurate science, they go on to say, it's not easy to make complex science interesting, but no one does it better than Sandra Steingraber. Why are scientific issues so complex and difficult to make interesting? And what's your strategy, both literarily and in terms of communicating things using perhaps new metaphors and new literary strategies Uh, What's your strategy for making them interesting?
1: Well, I read a lot of creative writers, for sure. I mean, I'll just answer this sort of with specifics rather than general. I guess we'll see where this leads. One of the writers I'm really excited about right now is a young gay writer named Taylor Broby, who grew up right near Standing Rock in rural North Dakota, and whose family is deeply invested in coal and kind of every form of fossil fuel. And he's really writing the story of North Dakota as a gay man who grew up there. And one of the things that his writing is revealing to me that is giving me a new idea is like he has cataloged all these metaphors in the oil fields, right, that are part of the community where he grew up. So just for example, he writes about the hats that are for sale in the gas stations calling the place where he grew up big cock country. Um, t-shirts that you can buy that say going deep and pumping hard and frack that hole, right? And in retail shop, they're also named for this. So he he talks about a coffee shop called the Boomtown Babes Espresso, where the cannonballs are look like breasts and an ice cream shop where there's a flavor called oil patch prairie praline, which brown sugar and chocolate syrup and brownies, which I think probably is racial too. I mean, it's supposed to look like oil, right? But the idea of brown sugar brings these other connotations to me. And so his writing kind of reveals in the way that he explicates all this sort of metaphoric landscape of this place, the Bakken Shale. It helps me thinking about what I know as a public health biologist about actual violent victimization of women in these places right mostly indigenous women who are disappeared who are murdered when man camps come in sex trafficking is always linked to the arrival of fracking operations in the west also uh, rape domestic violence women become homeless because man camps increase the cost of rent children end up in foster care so the kind of social blight that happens with this kind of industry that really provides jobs for men and looks at women as kind of objects that can be bought and sold with the money that they're making and in addition of the of fracking itself is kind of this act of violence against the earth that's very sexualized and very kind of heterosexualized and so it was really the amazing insights of taylor brorby that kind of brought all that to my attention so i i really do think that the, the kind of interchange between creative writers and scientists is a is a really fruitful place and otherwise in terms of strategies i would say that yes ecology is this huge complex system But so is our economy, and actually they share this Greek root, right, oikos, meaning household. And so we have a whole language to talk about our economy, and we talk about it every single day on on the nightly news. And every time you turn your phone on, you get an update on how our economy is doing, because, you know, there's the Dow, there's the S&P. And so... I often imagine what would it be like if we had a a, just kind of this ticker of language around how our ecology is doing. You know, what's the exchange rate between sea ice and freshwater today? You know, what's the sort of metric for biodiversity and how? how, You know, like we could follow that along on a daily basis because we live in these two households—one complicated economic household where we're 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 made to understand that in the last recession anyway that banking practices in Iceland had an effect on mortgages in California, and we're We're supposed to track all that and understand that credit default swaps and hedge funds and all these complicated things, they were mysterious and they were, we wanted to turn our eyes toward them and explicate them and understand them because somehow our ability to retire or put our kids through college or pay off a student loan. Like we were all in this big economic boat together and we needed to figure this out, right? Well, we're also in a big ecological boat together. And the only source of the oxygen we breathe, and we breathe in two pints of air with every inhalation, and 20% of that is oxygen, which we desperately need. And all of that oxygen comes to us from plants, half from the world's plankton and half from the world's land plants. And so what do you know about the plankton in the ocean and how they're doing? And it turns out, their productivity is down by one to 2% every year. And so at some point that's affecting our oxygen, but that's going by without our notice. Whereas, you know, the price of gas, we follow very closely when it goes up by a dime or goes down by a dime, it's headline news. Well, what if the plankton in the ocean and their ability to make oxygen, what if we were tracking that with the kind of close, that kind of close attention, that monitoring language that we do with the economy? So in thinking about that, you know, I guess I, because I'm trained also as a creative writer, I think about the power of a, a plot <laughs> with, with suspense, the plow, power of characters that have dialogue that get into conflict with each other. And so I'm always interested in a human story that kind of serves as the the engine on which I can strap some science, like the radiative forcing of methane, right? And you you want to know how the human story turns out. So you'll get through the science that I present. So that's one strategy and then another one is that science just by convention is reductionist so that typically like in a textbook of biology we start off with the component parts like molecules or subcellular organelles. And then we move through the cell and then up to the tissue layer and then the organ layer. And then we finally get to anatomy and behavior and then maybe ecology, which is like is seen as this emergent property of all those things, right? At the end of the semester, and almost we never get there. And so we don't get to teach ecology. That's just convention. There's no right or wrong way to present that. You could turn it upside down. And so that I often do. I start with the really big ecological stuff. As I did in my book, Living Downstream, I start off with the whole ecology of the prairie. And then we don't get to the epigenetic cellular stuff until the very end of the book, chapter 11, because I just feel like for most people, especially not in STEM fields, that capturing them with these lo- larger landscapes that they live in and are familiar and are empir- empirical to people is a better starting. So me as a writer, starting with the molecules and moving up. So I like to start with the big things that kind of create funnels and then move down. So if you want to understand the mystery of why something is happening in the larger world, you really have to understand, let's say, the pharmacokinetics of dioxin, and now I'm going to explain it to you. But I've already got you hooked, right, with some like mystery that you're really invested in. So that's me revealing my secret.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to ask you a question about an article that you recently published that received a massive amount of attention from a wide variety of scholars, including me, titled commentary, a farewell to Ithaca College after 18 years. In the piece, you detail the faculty cuts made at the college in line with its, quote, academic program prioritization. What was the nature of those cuts?
1: Yeah, so I am, after 18 years of serving as a scholar in residence at Ithaca College in a very beloved way, I'm now going to be retiring at the end of this year and and not really by my choice. I am part of a faculty in a campus in crisis right now. So between one in every four and one in every five faculty are losing their jobs at Ithaca College as a result of a form of austerity. That goes by this name that's sweeping across liberal arts colleges across the land, academic prioritization process, which is a a way of figuring out which departments generate the most majors, generate the most this and that, and try to kind of bean count the value of those things. And then the smaller departments then are cut, right? So so invariably, the humanities takes it on the chin. So we're losing philosophy, we're losing anthropology, foreign languages, and things like that. And and because of this kind of ranking system that exists within the academy, that means the professors who are the first to go are the ones that are contingent or not non-tenured. And that's where you ha- we, you know you happen to find the most women, the most people of color and so on. And so when these processes sweep through, faculty get older and they get more male, they get wh- whiter. And for me being surrounded by some of my dearest colleagues and watching them losing their jobs in the middle of a pandemic, losing their health insurance, many still have student loans left over from graduate school. Many have young children in the school systems, mortgages. It's just devastating. And, and for me, who was about to launch a center for climate justice with a grant, I was counting on and had the help of so many faculty who were teaching the climate crisis across the curriculum and nine of those, including the two co-chairs of the Climate Action Group convened by the provost, they're losing their jobs. So all of a sudden I was kind of left alone trying to figure out how to launch an interdisciplinary initiative by myself. And I realized I could not in good faith anymore reassure my funder that I was going to be able to do this. And so I've made a big pivot and, um, still trying to figure out um, what's next for me, but I cannot do my work there. Just it's actually been really traumatizing.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. This is something that I think a lot about. And to your earlier point, I try and think about how to tell the story of what I call the collapse of interdisciplinary work and collapse of support for the humanities in particular, or for the non-STEM communities at academic institutions more specifically. And I think about this and, you know, Because perhaps we've been talking, a lot of the story coordinate points come up for me. The first is the, I think, real push toward uh, sending federal money towards STEM in the wake of the Cold War, in which the United States newly feared that it needed to catch up with China and with Russia. And so it heaved money into STEM and kind of abandoned policies that had previously been set up to promote civic properties and civic values in academic institutions, which was the purview of the humanities. And I look at the ways in which that's reflected over and over and over again, in which that initial push becomes policy, and then it becomes an excuse for justifying spending money in one region and cutting other regions as well. And I'm exceptionally concerned about the action that you detail because it seems to drive a stake into the heart of the incredibly important interdisciplinary collaborative work that so many of us value and that so many of us who are interested in building an ethical approach to things like STEM, to technological products, to a kind of self-reflexive attitude in science that I think is ethically driven, to questions about the environment, the sciences broadly, questions that I think are actually essential to our culture and if not to our survival for decades to come. Those are not scientific questions at heart, although they are going to be driven by scientific knowledge. The questions of the ethics behind something, not just can we, but should we do something are questions of humanistic value. And I think that those are going to be the questions that are going to be central for us to face in the next couple of decades. Are you concerned that Ithaca College's cuts represent a broader turn in the academy toward monolithic Univision approaches? If so, what do you foresee as the consequences of that, both for the scholars who work on these topics and? for the future of the discourse itself. What consequences are you most concerned about?
1: That's a really good question. Well, I don't know where this is going to land. And I want to say that I don't want to imply that Ithaca College is like this doomed sinking ship, right? There's an active student, alumni, and faculty uprising against what I call disaster capitalism, which is treating faculty as though we were kind of disposable parts, right? Like if you want a right-sided corporation, And what that kind of corporatist look at the faculty kind of leaves out is the fact that, by definition, the academy is made up of individuals who have unique areas of expertise. I mean, we are—we profess that we are professors because we have actually extended the knowledge of human understanding in some area, right? So if you cut the medieval Spanish scholar who, who has an expertise in Arab-Spanish relationships in the 11th century, then there's nobody else who knows those things. That's just lost knowledge. And so in, in the larger way, humanity certainly taught me as a graduate of a liberal arts education that human beings are not just the value of their labor to a corporation that we have inherent worth and dignity and what is the meaning of being a human being right and i mean that i think it's an elevational approach to life that those of us who decided to not be part of the corporate capitalist world who wanted to be in the academy did so because we create a social critique of that of the power relationships and see value in human life above and beyond the corporation sees so that when boards of trustees or higher administration bring in this corporatist frame the academic prioritization process and dismiss whole waves of faculty then all kinds of relationships and the collective fabric of interdisciplinarity can really be lost and we become kind of professional training grounds which is not what liberal arts colleges were ever supposed to be so for me it's cutting out the heart and soul of why I'm even in the academy in the the first place. And I have to say it's really devastating for me personally because I have been in school every year of my life since age five and I'm now 61. And so I, yes, I am a front facing activist because out of necessity, because so much of the science I know is not being paid attention to by the policymakers. And I can't just gently make my case before Congress or in a state legislature or before the EPA and make change happen. I do that too, but sometimes it doesn't work. And so sometimes I have to join with others and do civil disobedience or threaten to do it. And I have had together with many hundreds of other people, you know, I've participated in closing down a gas storage facility. I helped ban fracking in the state of New York. I'm using science to help other communities push out the oil and gas industry and embrace something else right so i do that out of necessity but by temperament I, the classroom is my natural habitat, and I just like nothing better just, than just to explain stuff with a piece of chalk in my hand. I love having my own students. I love it when they call me professor, and I'm good at it, and I, I feel I am i wasn't ready to retire. You know, if if I could stay and launch a Center for Climate Justice at Ithaca College, I would have done it, but to see so much injustice happening all around me, and then to put plant a flag that says I stand for justice, wh- while there's so much... People's lives are being wrecked. It's just, it became, the disconnect became too much for me.
0: I want to push on this a little bit in a couple of ways. The title of the piece that published when it appeared in the Ithacan was Commentary, a farewell to Ithaca College after 18 years. But I've also seen it published under the alternative title, which you referenced Disaster Capitalism for Higher Education. In a nutshell, what does this alternate title get at?
1: Yeah, well, first of all, authors of commentaries never get to determine their titles, those are editorial decisions. And although the piece I wrote itself has been reposted and printed it was I think translated into French at some point so yes it did go viral and it went all around the world and has been reposted in many places and with various headlines but the words I wrote are still the same I wrote them and published them initially in our own student newspaper at Ithaca College because I believe so strongly in student newspapers and I myself was a reporter for a student newspaper and wrote editorial so I was delighted to offer my kind of cry of the heart and the, my social criticism of this whole APP process in general to put to like place it in the student newspaper and because the goal was to let my college know that I would be leaving I wrote it in a certain way so I really wrote it for my fellow faculty members and my students to let them know why I was leaving and then it got picked up. It was recontextualized as it should be because it wasn't just about our college. This is happening everywhere. And so, a phrase that I used within the essay, disaster capitalism, to describe the academic prioritization process became the title that then went kind of public. It wasn't just a farewell, right? It's an analysis of what I think is happening.
0: I want to ask you as we end a couple of questions specifically about the intersection of ethics and technology. There's a section of your website with the header civil disobedience which you referenced earlier. For those of us who have objections to unethical practices in the tech industry, what strategies would you advocate? We see, for example, tech workers going on strike, we see them taking to Twitter. What would you advise the technologist who objects to the practices of their tech company? What should they do?
1: I don't have ever advise or tell people what to do. And I know actually that's frustrating to a lot of my readers, but I really feel like this is the decision about what to do is deeply personal and requires a lot of self-discernment and looking in the mirror, right? So I do, on the other hand, kind of live my own life out loud. So when I choose to, to break the law, I write an op-ed about it or I publish an essay about it so people so I can kind of testify to my own decision-making so people can see the self-discernment that I go through. And then if I choose to go to jail for a longer jail sentence rather than pay the fine, then because I think there's some continued value in civil disobedience by going to jail, then I'll lay that out in a kind of manifesto style. So those, you know, people can find those works and then they can use them as models or counter models for their own decision-making. So for me, I like to, what's the right word, trouble the assumption that environmental activists are preachy and are going to tell you, don't fly, don't wear leather shoes, eat vegan, do this and that, that kind of individualization of what we should do is actually part of the problem somehow. And in a way that I'm still trying to articulate and understand, but it leads to what psychologists are calling well-informed futility syndrome, (laughs) which is a form of learned helplessness in which that more you learn about some large problem over which you feel like you have no agency, that the worse you feel, and the feelings are so unbearable, unbearable grief or unbearable shame, that you turn away from learning anything more about that. So I don't wanna do that. I mean, we all have to be all in on the climate crisis, right? But the best way I feel like I can recruit people is by not telling them, go do this. Your duty is to, to this thing, and so go do it. But rather just say, I've looked at these data. This is what I do. I mean, I often use metaphors (laughs) to describe this. I often say, you know, we're all musicians in this great human orchestra. It really is now time to play the Save the World Symphony. You don't have to play a solo. I don't even know what instrument you hold, but you know, right? And you just have to find your place in the score. So I actually do work with literal musicians on climate change. And one of the things I talk to them about is that Classical musical instruments, especially stringed instruments, come from certain trees and sort various violins come from trees in Italy that are, live in a particular forest and they are being destroyed now by extreme weather from climate change and they're also growing at different rates so that the the actual cells of these plants are changing in ways that they have different acoustical properties so the orchestras of the future are going to sound different than they do now right so there's a pathway for a musician a classical musical musician there's the connection for that person that that their actual literal instrument comes from the natural world and is being harmed by the climate. So that's your starting point. Whereas the engineers you know that work in STEM fields, my I would talk to them about something entirely different. Our decision to to exhume all these corpses and light them on fire to run our economy is just was one decision that was made in the nineteenth century. And if we can agree that we need to move away from that, whether it's a moral reason or an economic reason, then what's your role as an engineer in this moment in time? to try to figure out how to do something else rather than, you know, try to just make oil and gas work ever better.
0: One thing I hear from technologists in particular is that they have the assumption that their profession, specifically uh, their technological productions are synonymous with progress, which itself they oftentimes take as synonymous with the good. But of course, fracking is a technology. Extraction of fossil fuels into oil is a technology. The carcinogens that you finger as culprits in the proliferation of cancers are also the product of technological production. When I talk to my students about the ethics of technology, one thing I keep at the core is that often when we create tech products, we ask, can we, can we do this? Can we build this? Can we create this? Can we make a profit off of this? Ethics though, is that question of should we do this? Should we build this? Should we create this? Should we make a profit off of this? How do you think about the ethics of technology from the standpoint of environmental justice or public health or all the dimensions of your work?
1: Well, I tend not to use should words just because, again, I think they reinforce this idea that here comes another environmentalist telling you what you should do. But I often ask, as Rachel Carson did before me, you know, why do we take the counsel from those who are advocating this Harmful regressive technologies. Why not look about us and see what alternatives are available to us? So, oftentimes, there are so many other ways of doing something better, right? Mm -hmm. And yes, not everything that's a change is a change for progress. I see fracking the earth by using drinking water as a club to smash the bedrock below our feet in order to extract oil and gas, which requires sending toxic chemicals through our drinking water aquifers, we're just creating chaos down there. We're turning our bedrock into shards in in order to burn fossil fuels and then frack our atmosphere. And then, create health problems for everybody living on the sunlit surface in between right so I mean I could go to the humanities you know and take that old expression kind of about the divine and its relationship to the earth like as above so below and turn it around and say as below so above like you if you frack the bedrock you're going to frack the atmosphere too and that is not progress that's just just that's just chaos and destruction right and it's inherently unmanageable for all the reasons those of us in stem understand that there are if, if you are fracturing rock at that level with that kind of lithostatic pressure with unknown fractures and fissures you will get an unpredictable outcome it will be stochastic like we understand stochasticity And we understand entropy. And so, I mean, it's up to us then to go to the policymakers and say, you know, this way of running our energy system by blasting the bedrock apart, using water and toxic chemicals, it's inherently unmanageable. There's no way to control it. We can't stop the earthquakes that come from it. We can't stop methane from rising up out of the shale and entering the atmosphere, we can't stop the radon gas, which we know is a decay product of uranium, from entering people's basements. And we have good data on this now in places like Ohio and Pennsylvania showing that if you live near a fracking site, the radon in your basement is going to increase after fracking starts. And we know that radon is the number two cause of cancer. So we're, you know, you can talk about it in humanistic terms. You can say that we are opening up Pandora's box, sorry to use that metaphor, but you can talk about it also using the language of stochasticity and chaos theory and to help our policymakers understand that there's no set of rules or regulations that can make this safe, that fracking is like smoking in airplanes. There's no retrofits. There's no engineering fix to make it safe. So that's one of the things that we just need to ban from the earth and do something else. So let's look around and see how else we can keep the lights turned on. And there's many, many more elegant solutions that really would look like progress.
0: One thing that I've heard you say, and I'm thinking about the slow violence of Rob Nixon and that you were talking about, not only looking at what affects us right now, but what's going to affect future generations and an ethical obligation that we perhaps have to those future generations as well. I've heard you say, again, I'm quoting here, any chemical that can harm a fetus has no right in our economy. To me, there's a very clear question at the intersection of ethics and technology here. In particular, there's a question about how and with what kind of moral weight we consider the impact of our technologies, not just for our moment, not just for us, not just for the global community, many of whom we will never meet, but for future moments and future generations. How do you think about the angle of ethical thinking that belongs to our obligation to future generations for your work?
1: You know, again, my thinking on this comes straight out of the youth climate movement. So that's the community I'm listening to, particularly the Sunrise Movement, which I, who I think are really smart about this. So they talk about generational inequity. i think that's a good frame right the idea that like i was born in 1959 so most of my life has been led at a time when the climate has been fairly stable and predictable which means pollination systems for most of my life have been working there's been a reasonable amount of oxygen made by plants through photosynthesis and that miracle but for my children who are 19 and 22 years old most of their life will be lived in the future when those Things, No matter even if we decarbonize tomorrow are going to be more chaotic than they are today and more unpredictable and so that's a human rights violation because there are people in my baby boomer generation who were able to profit and gain wealth from destroying the ecological conditions for their own children and grandchildren to to live in. And that is as much an injustice as what's happening when we alter the climate in such a way that sea level rises and affects people who live on coastal areas or by placing all the infrastructure for oil and gas extracting in um, Black, Indigenous, and Latino Latino communities. And by the way, in in, um, working with the community in near Boston called Weymouth, Massachusetts, where um, a big toxic compressor station is going in in an Asian immigrant community as well. And so youth are definitely along with the impoverished people of the world and and people of color on the front lines of all this. Um, And so their analysis, they get to create the analysis, and then that should become the marching orders for all of the scientists. I don't need to invent my own analysis. I just need to listen to the youth.
0: One final question, speaking directly to our audience of future technologists and humanists engaged in technological environments, the next generation, what should this next generation, in your view, or, or how might the next generation think, understand, be aware of, respond to the injustices that they see at this moment? What, particularly in tech, what would you want them to be thinking about?
1: Well, again, I'm I'm never directive in my <laughs> in my thinking, so I'm I'm not going to answer that directly um, because I think the answer is going to be different for everyone. I would just probably end with a reminder that we need to move a whole system. We need to preserve an ecological system and move a whole economic system that is destroying the ecological system. And so this is it. we need systems thinking. We need you to be less of an individual and we need you to be more thinking about how how to best affect the system and to do it to the best of your ability to bring whatever skill set you have and really engage and not turn away from this climate crisis moment we find ourselves in. So this isn't about you having your own career and then doing something on the side. This is about you taking your whole self and directing it at, at this existential problem that we have. So you know, you only have one life. Why not live it heroically, right? And so the upside of having this monumental catastrophic problem that is the climate crisis is that it's going to only, it's going to take heroic action on the part of all of us to stop it. Well, guess what? You get to be a hero, right? You get to be David in the fight against the Philistine named Goliath. That's the oil and gas industry. What's your slingshot? How do you make it? What's it made out of? Well, only you know the answer to that because your skill set and mine are not the same, right? My slingshot's made out of love, science, and grassroots political power. That's what I, that's my magic combination. But your slingshot's something else. And so, So how are you gonna be David in this moment, right? So that's just a kind of question that I would ask everyone. And that's coming out of my own, like Methodist church upbringing where David and Goliath is a foundational story. And maybe it's a foundational story to my Jewish friends. Maybe that framework doesn't work at all for some of our listeners, right? And you need some other heroic story as your model. So think about your own family, right? Like I'm adopted, so I don't have like ancestry, but I do have an adoptive father Wilbur Steingraber, whose name I bear proudly because he was an 18-year-old who had to go off and fight the Nazis as a German-American. And he's the one who taught me, if there is an atrocity, you have a German name, you are not allowed to be a good German and say you don't see it, right? You have to engage with it. And so that's something I learned from my adoptive father. And every time I have to spell my unwieldy Germanic name, Steingraber, I'm reminded that that's what part of my I choose that as my ancestry, right? I choose that as my role model. So if they're Nazis who need fighting, we fight them. If there's climate change that is threatening all of life on Earth, of course, we're not going to just turn away and act like we're going to party until we can't party anymore. We're going to use whatever our skill set is and throw it at this problem and do it collectively with everyone else. How you do that, I don't know. That's the self-discernment that everyone has to go through.
0: Thank you very much. Sandra.
1: Yeah.